Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Blackpool's Winter Gardens, the beachfront at Bournemouth and Brighton, huge international conference centres in Manchester and Birmingham, and now a bare room in Canary Wharf with just a video camera for company. Yes, the Conservative Party conference was not immune to the effects of COVID-19, and the staging of the Prime Minister's speech was a long way from anything delivered by his predecessors. We're going to dissect Boris Johnson's vision of a new Jerusalem and take a look at what he said, what he didn't, what it means for the government and the country. Rishi Sunak, the party's golden boy at the moment, also took to the virtual podium and gave a speech more focused on the present than the future. We'll take a look at the Chancellor's message and whether it's at odds with the Prime Minister's. Despite all efforts, carefully choreographed conferences, announcements, press releases and policy pledges, they're always at the mercy of events, such as a data error, which has led to 16,000 COVID test results being mislaid. We're going to look at what went wrong and what the government needs to get its test and trace regime back on track. To discuss all that, I'm joined in our virtual studio by IFG Senior Fellow Jill Rutter. Hello. Giles Wilkes. Hi there, Bronwyn. And I'm delighted to be joined too by Salma Shah, a former special advisor at a number of government departments, including working for Sajid Javid during his time as Home Secretary. Great to have you with us today. Hello. All right, let's plunge in and let's start with a Prime Minister's speech. No packed hall of party members, which meant no laughter, no cheers, no applause. It's safe to say that this will have been a new experience for Boris Johnson. Salma, how will his team have approached such a surreal address? So I almost feel that um, given everything else that's going on uh, in government at the moment, this is actually sort of a bit of welcome respite from the usual challenges that you have with a conference speech. I think two things. I mean, let's set aside kind of how it was delivered and how it was received, but just look at the mechanics of it from behind the scenes. Normally, you have a set piece speech from the Prime Minister at Tory party conference. Um, There is huge pressure to have, uh, you know, a a big announcement in it, be able to trail some good messaging, and the planning of it probably starts somewhere in the middle of July. So most of recess is taken up with conference planning because everybody cares about it so much. And every every bit of this speech is, 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 is carefully crafted. And, then, and some of it leaked in advance and so on. Exactly. This time, what you have is obviously a, a, an emergency, a crisis in, in government, in the country. And so nobody is looking at this expecting there to be fireworks or expecting there to be kind of a big reset or a shift in you know whatever else is happening. So in some ways, you know, behind the scenes, the technical aspects of it mean that this is a bit of a respite from, from the usual. So the fact that it's on Zoom, the fact that nobody's really noticed, I think is probably a plus point for the government because there are other things to be concerned about. What is a problem is that, you know, the thing that has replaced what would normally happen in terms of all eyes being on you for the conference speeches is a lot of negative news about um, loss in uh, test results for COVID. What I mean to say is that even even if you've sort of removed this kind of pressure of conference in the conference speech, actually it, the reasoning is that you've got other things, other fires to fight on different fronts. Yeah. Jill, I mean, there were some huge ambitions expressed there, weren't there? Even in, um, before you get to New Jerusalem, there's a lot about the uh, the sunny uplands of the future. Yes, it was very optimistic. I actually thought that the circumstances actually suited the moment quite well because it sort of forced Boris Johnson to sort of tone it down a bit. And I think that was actually probably more appropriate than than the usual joke fest we might have expected if he'd been doing it to the Tory party faithful. But there were some big announcements. But I think the big thing about this 
government is that it likes the eye-catching big announcement. Nobody, I think, doubts the fact that it can make eye-catching big announcements. And the big question is, can the government actually follow through on those? And I think that's what we saw again here, is we had a very big announcement on offshore wind. Boris Johnson getting a lot of plaudits, actually, from uh, environmental campaigners for the fact that I think he's probably the first party uh, party leader to major as the sort of centrepiece of his speech on something to do with net zero. That's very good. As we've argued, he really, really needs to step up to the plate. Just spell out for us how big, was this a new commitment? Uh, It wasn't really new. We knew the government had big ambitions in offshore wind. So the commitment wasn't really new. We got a bit of extra money, but not very much. And nobody would say that's equal to the task. So we got an increased level of ambition on where we wanted to be on offshore wind. By 2030, we got this great phrase about Britain becoming the Saudi Arabia for wind. Uh, so that was that was good. But I think most people were saying, well, actually, this really requires far more investment than he is letting on. And that 160 million, 160 million that he announced doesn't really come, uh, come close to that. But he's right. I mean, offshore wind is one of the big UK success stories of the last decade, if you're looking at policy successes. We really have sort of, you know, increased our capacity there. And one of the things that has been very interesting on offshore wind is the way in which the government has managed to sort of onshore some of the benefits by matching it with a bit of industrial strategy as well. So it is actually quite a success and something to build on. But it's just a start. And the Prime Minister really needs to follow through with more detail. I mean, other areas, he went back to social care, nice warm words about social care, but we just got a sort of thing saying he would sort social care. We've been waiting for him to sort social care for really quite a long time. So did, did you find that not credible? I think it's fine in a conference speech, and actually in the civil service, it's very different view from Selma. I mean, I think most civil servants and most government departments regard party conference as a nightmare, and you're just watching with, through sort of you know, your fingers to see how many undeliverable commitments are you lumbered with as a result of party conference speeches, which don't go through normal civil service clearance processes? So I think people might think they ducked a bullet, but I think what people were looking for was, you know, you can talk big at your party conference and it's great you have some ambition and want to throw forward, but you really, really need to show you can deliver. And that's the big question mark over this government. Can it govern as well as it can clearly campaign? But Jill, in that sense, don't you think that um, this is this would have been a, a conference that would have been appreciated by the civil servants in that it was small, it wasn't the thing that dominated, and it sort of did avoid um, making you know huge spending commitments because obviously there's there's no budget, we don't know what the parameters are, what the envelope is, um, and also it stuck very much to to what was essentially in the manifesto. I think you're right there, Selma. I think uh, I think actually it's the next best thing to the civil service compared to having the party conference cancelled, which would probably be most people's uh, in the civil service first choice. But Giles, what, you know, did you find it a credible speech? These big, big ambitions, including stuff on industrial strategy and, and levelling up. I mean, can I can I be really frank and say no? In that, I I think saying stuff is so easy. Coming up with alliterative three word slogans is so easy. You have to have the curiosity in government to say if this is such a great idea, and I'm doing and and you know I've got all of these challenges, and yet I'm going to do these things. I wonder why they haven't happened so far already. Why haven't we already got thirty year mortgages or a solution to social care or all of this offshore wind 
built. And it's because it's really, really difficult. And it means facing actual trade-offs. Like there was a section in the speech where he says, and I want the private sector to return. And I also want to build the new Jerusalem a la Clement Attlee. Those are 180 degree opposite aspirations. Clement Attlee did that with the might of the state and owning a lot of industry and nationalizing health. And um, so what what we wait for, I think, at the IFG above all, is to look for people who confront and explain how the difficult trade-offs are going to be made. What's going to be interesting is the contrast between Rishi Sunak saying tough choices coming, fiscal limits are there or thereabouts, so I'm going to have to deal with them, and I'm going to try and do everything and isn't it going to be great from Boris Johnson. And I'm afraid that the Rishi Sunak vision, although uh, there's a lot of criticism of him macroeconomically, saying the economy can't take it and so forth, at least he recognises that there are constraints on action which force choices. And I didn't see evidence of any of those in the Prime Minister's speech. I think the offshore wind is a great example. It wasn't already it was already in the manifesto, 40 gigawatts of wind. We've got about eight right now, which already puts us way ahead of the world. To go to 40, you need to retool the whole system. And you need to have a, a, a total transformation in deliverable, deliverability and coordination between government departments. I haven't seen evidence that they know how to do that yet. But Giles, can you, in, whilst I cannot disagree with anything that you've said in terms of the difficulties, of the, the trade-offs and the complexities of the issues that uh, are being discussed here, I mean, there, we have to accept that actually what the Prime Minister was doing was speaking to a particular type of audience and that is the thing about party conference. It's it sort of moved over years, but you know if it, it's envisaged as talking to your to your membership. And you know the conference speeches traditionally were always about throwing red meat out there to the membership. That you know in every political party, um, are it's kind of like a concentrated, uh, not not representative view of, of the the nation as a whole. And of course, it's moved into becoming one of those set piece things where you're trying to talk to the country and trying to sell your message. So it's not necessarily the place that you would want to to sort of illuminate some of those trade-offs and some of that complexity. So I don't think the audience would have been right for that at that point. No, that's not to say that, you know, people who are, you know, civil servants and policymakers and stakeholders uh, aren't looking at that speech and saying, you know, where well, so, is so, Simon, the, let me ask you one thing. Did you think it was a conservative speech? Uh, the Prime Minister went to some lengths to say, look, I, I, I'm conservative and this is the way in which we're different. And he, he spent quite a chunk of the speech um, lambasting the opposition um and did it did, did, did that work did it? no no i don't, i don't think it is a um a, a traditionally conservative speech i don't think this is a traditionally conservative government but this has been there has been a sort of um leftward shift for a long time i think um and this probably started um you know, with George Osborne, austerity aside, you know, post the 2015 general election, there was a lot more um, around policy that was more interventionist. And certainly even, you know, my former boss, Arch Thatcherite Sajid Javid, you know, he introduced an apprenticeship levy and increased the national living wage. Those are not traditionally conservative policies. So I don't think this is, I think this is the end result of, of, a, of a, a leftward shift in um well, maybe exacerbated by coronavirus, but, but still, I mean, he, he was trying very hard to say, look, there is something distinct about, even in the age well, of coronavirus, there is something distinct about being uh, a, a conservative, and he put a lot of emphasis on, on ownership, 
uh, of, of homes, of, of entrepreneurship, and, and so on. Do you think he managed to sketch out uh, what it is to be a conservative um, in an age uh, of, of uh, necessary huge amounts of public spending? Um, I think that that is still an ongoing process. I think that he he can certainly speak to things that most conservatives will recognise as, as Tory. So, you know, talking about ownership and home ownership and that kind of thing. Um, so it's a kind of like it's a shorthand for being able to say that we're a conservative government. I think it's going to take a long time and a lot of effort to rationalise um, what is essentially a, a centralising interventionist government to make it feel like it is distinct from what anybody else is offering. Um, I mean, we need to see where the Labour Party comes out in terms of uh, its policies um, and then see how the Conservative Party then either defines itself um, against it and draws those kind of ideological red lines. But, you know, I think it's... It, the conservative messaging in that speech was simplistic and was based on things that we already know um, to be, I suppose, conservative tropes. It is not uniquely um, Johnsonism. Um, it is not a, a new way of defining conservatism in this new era. Of course, it is significant. If you talk to a party which has a well-known ideological position and you can be the sort of Nixon to China person who says, look, I need to move you and this and it's significant because here's the person talking to their grassroots and that moves the Overton window, if you like, of where policy can happen. But that only really, if it's just saying nice words and getting a cheer, it doesn't mean anything. What matters is that it changes the facts on the ground. Blair going to the Labour Party and saying we're not doing Clause 4 anymore, we don't believe in nationalisation and getting that vote through is significant. If Johnson had said amongst all these other things, and as a result of wanting to do them, we're going to face these choices, then you'd say, great, I, I'm going to change my assessment of what future green policy or social care policy is going to be. But if, he, if it's the usual two plus two equals seven attempt to say, and oh, we can do everything and everything's going to be great, despite the fact that this country is now much poorer because of coronavirus and this Brexit we're about to do, then you can see why judgment has to be suspended until you see that the party has accepted the trade-offs implicit in all of this stuff. And yeah. so it's great that they're hearing it, but are they really hearing it? And, you know, maybe all he was trying to do was move them from gloom to optimism. Um, mm. that, that, that bit of Johnsonism, if you like, um, rather than some great ideological shift. And, and I think that's what we slightly missed by dint of this being done in the format it was, was that given the amount of criticism that the Prime Minister is getting at the moment from his backbenchers and from the Conservative press, it would have been, I would have thought, quite helpful for him if he'd been able to do the usual sort of rallying cry and clearly still was the darling of the party in the country, as we might have seen in the optics if he'd, uh, if he'd been actually able to address a full conference hall, but by dint of having to do it, as you said, Bronwyn, in a sterile studio somewhere in Canary Wharf on his own, we lack that sort of sense that this is a man who still is the party sort of pin-up, which he always was before. Let's move on to our second subject, the hard choices that Giles was talking about and the Chancellor's speech and the point that we've already touched on of whether, in fact, it's a different 
vision or a different account of the future from the Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak uh, focused in his speech uh, on how his policies uh, will be paid for, paying up to help out, if you like, and it listed 19 steps that the Treasury has taken since the start of the crisis. Tama, I mean, he's not any more the new kid on the block, and um, he's polling rather higher than the Prime Minister in the popularity stakes. What is his standing, do you think, in, in this debate? And there is a debate in the party. So his standing in the party is interesting because he he obviously took the job in very sort of difficult circumstances and people were nervous about whether he was going to be prepared and whether he could take on this huge challenge of being chancellor. And this was, you know, just before we understood the impact of COVID. I think he's respected because he seems to have managed this incredibly well. I think what's unexpected is that he would stand his ground so much. And there's there's always, you know, chatter between uh, people in Westminster about how people are getting on at the top and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, no matter what, you're never going to get away from the creative uh, conflict that you have between number 10 and 11. I think given that he looks so competent, he looks so in control, there are a lot, there are a lot of people that will trust his opinion and trust his position on things, which will make it difficult to ignore him in that, you know, not just by virtue of the fact that he's chancellor, but by the fact that he's a respected chancellor, will make it difficult for people to ignore um, his position. So I think his standing is very, very high. Um, and I think it will continue to be so. I mean, there's lots of people that disagree with me because they think when the economic crunch comes and when it's more apparent and we start seeing, you know, rising, rises in unemployment that, you know, Rishi Star will wane. I think that actually the fact that he's been so honest and actually going back to Giles's earlier point about, you know, being clearer with people about the trade-offs. I think he has been clearer with people about the trade-offs and therefore there's a level of trust there with him that probably isn't true for most of the rest of Cabinet. Giles, he's been making two sorts of arguments. I mean, one, that this will all have to be paid for at some point, and the other, that coronavirus is going to change the shape of the economy and uh, the steps that the Treasury is taking really need to support that or encourage that, and hence moving away from the furlough scheme to to other measures of, 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 of job support. Do you think he's right in those? And I'm thinking particularly the second one, the government, after all, still has all kinds of local lockdowns in place. It's telling all kinds of people that for national health reasons, they can't work. Is, is it appropriate to talk about, to, to really try and take steps to rebalance the economy to a post-coronavirus world at this point? It's, it's a valid judgment to make. I mean, if you recall from like several eons ago when I wrote my bailout for um, coronavirus report for the IFG, uh, we identified this stage, the restructuring stage, as one of the ones where there are going to be really tough choices about businesses that are no longer viable. And what is the method for shifting resource from one to the other? And Rishi is a markets guy. He thinks that the answer is to let market forces do the work, as they have done pretty well over the last um, couple of bad recessions. They've shifted resources from one place to another. And one unnoticed fact of coronavirus is the US economy is doing better than people might have predicted. And some are putting it down to this extremely Anglo-Saxon way of just shifting people from jobs in a way that kind of suits the new world over the old world. And the American political system is happier taking it. On the question of paying for it, where I would say 
he's being, I would say he's slightly wrong. And we can afford all the coronavirus support schemes we need. We're currently borrowing at nothing and they're one-offs. So the one-off cost of even a few hundred billion of spending is something that a state can afford. The reason he has to be talking about fiscal consolidation at some point is the economy is almost certainly a weaker thing in two or three years time. So when we come out of it, we're going to have more spending on things like the NHS and local authorities and social care and all of this other stuff. And we're going to have an economy that's producing less tax revenue. And I don't know, but people always talk abstractly about spending cuts we can do to fund this. Nobody's ever really named them. We even have an extra nine billion of R&D to fund. So as far as I see, we're going to have to raise taxes at some point just to pay for the British state. Not so much the stuff that we're doing in 2020, just to pay for public spending. And Jill, you, you used to work in the Treasury and you've written for us a lot on um, opportunities to uh, rationalise the, the UK's very complicated tax system. Do you think this is one of those? I think the Chancellor should be laying the groundwork for that because I do think that both coronavirus and also Brexit offer an opportunity. I think Kate Green or Labour's got uh, got into trouble for saying this, but it's an opportunity uh, to do something differently that it would be a shame to wait. So I have to say, if I was the Chancellor and I was having to delay my budget, I would actually be trying to set up perhaps some external commissions to promote a public debate about some of the issues that Charles has raised. You know, we want a bigger state. That seems to be one of the outcomes of the coronavirus uh, experience. We want a more resilient state. That means we can't sort of run everything down so it's running on near empty and incapable of responding adequately when needed. So if we want all that in a state which, in the words of the Prime Minister, can put its arms around people, then we're going to need down the line to pay for it. And I would now, if I were the Chancellor, be laying some of the groundwork for making some of the big choices. There's some polling that says people will support tax rises. The problem, of course, for the government is that polling mainly still shows that they support tax rises that they don't pay for. And the thing that we know is if you're going to raise serious money through the tax system, you actually have to tax most people more. You can't get away with just taxing the rich, um, which is a sort of easy thing to say and do. So I think the Chancellor has an opportunity, and I think he should be using some of his credibility to do that. It was a bit of a shame when he was actually put on the spot by Nick Robinson on the Today programme earlier in the week. And I think probably the first sort of big interview we could remember with Rishi Sunak about his economic policy more generally, that he was just hiding behind sort of, you know, you saw what we said in the manifesto, but I can't outside budgets talk about fiscal choices. He's actually got to come out and start talking about fiscal choices. Treasury officials are always saying to us, we want a better public debate about tax, but they need to take the lead and open that up, I think. Mm. And as I said, you used to work in the Treasury. How would you respond to the charge from businesses? that We're hearing quite a lot. The government just doesn't understand the private sector and the pressures it's under this winter compared to, say, people in public sector jobs? I think that's very interesting because actually we've had now two Conservative governments in a row, the Theresa May government and the Boris Johnson government, both of which are amazingly uninterested in business uh, compared to what you would expect a normal Conservative government to be like. I mean, they sort of, in a sense, turned off listening to business because business was saying the wrong things about Brexit for uh, for a government that was committed to pushing through 
what is now going to be, whether it's a deal or no deal, a very hard form of Brexit. I think they have been a bit more alert, actually, to some of the business concerns over coronavirus and limits to what they can do. But it's very, very strange how business seems to be defined as part of that sort of establishment elite that conservatives, uh, you know, the new brand of conservatives, maybe we call them new conservatives, turn their back on. Maybe that's the equivalent of Tony Blair's Clause clause 4 movement that uh, that the Conservatives are no longer the party of business. Hmm. Salma, your old boss at Sajid Javid ended up leaving as Chancellor because he wouldn't let Number 10 sack one of his aides. That hasn't proved a point of friction with Rishi Sunak. Any reason why? For Rishi, there is now a joint unit of advisors and special advisors um, who work for both uh, Number 10 and the Treasury. So if theoretically, the friction was supposed to um, end because there was, uh, as I said, this joint unit. I just want, can I just go back to a point that Jill made about the Conservatives and the Party for Business? I think there's an interesting dynamic here, which is going to change. When Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, and was talking about, you know, very big, radical policies that did not appeal to business whatsoever. The Conservatives were the natural place for most of business to go. And therefore, strategically, uh, the Conservatives would have banked that support. And I think what is different now is that the opposition has changed, which means that the Conservatives can't take that support uh, for granted anymore. And I think you are, we are going to start seeing... Uh, a shift in the way that uh, the party and government transacts with business in the future. So I don't think it's I don't think it's necessary that it's just going to be big business and sort of the prism of Brexit. I think that that is the critical factor that's uh, that's actually changed in terms of how government is going to react to them. But uh, sorry, Bronwyn, just to go back to um, the Treasury. Um, I think that, you know, from, from what you can see, I think that this even this joint unit is going to have to start thinking about, you know, how does it serve these two opposing views that, are, that seem to be coming out of number 10 and 11 in terms of, you know, number 10 naturally uh, the place that wants to spend and wants to have these big eye-catching policies and, you know, think in terms of headlines. And I don't think it's just the Boris Johnson administration. To varying degrees, every administration does the same thing, you know, at the centre in number 10 versus what the Treasury is saying. And as, as Giles points out, um, you know, the, what the numbers are going to look like, what the, what the tax intake is going to be and what they actually have to play with. So it's going to be interesting to see how that joint unit and that function plays out uh, in the longer term, because I think it's going to have to settle on one side or another. I was just interested, Selma, whether you think Richie Sunak has effectively taken control of that joint unit. Do you think he's actually sort of made them be clear the Treasury is a place with the resources, got the sort of policies, uh, can outgun the Cabinet Office on this? Do you think actually that's why it seems to be working okay at the moment? Well, I think I think that was always the inevitability, if I'm if I'm totally honest. Because if you are going to recruit a unit that is full of people with economic expertise. Um, and not political expertise, naturally, it's going to drift towards the Treasury. You can have the intentions uh, of, of, the, of what this function is going to be, but it's it sort of, when it beds in, like I said, it has to be one thing or another. So it's not even necessarily that Rishi has made a concerted effort to take control of it and, you know, have it in the Treasury. I think naturally, it's just where it's going to go. It's where the information is. It's where the policy levers exist. Um, the Treasury, it's where the officials are going to be that you have to talk to. 
So there's obviously naturally, just by how you have to conduct yourself day to day, the attachment will be more to the to even the building of the Treasury. I strongly agree with Salma there. When there was a lot of excitement on February the 13th when this happened, and it swiftly became apparent that it was a reverse takeover. There aren't really any economists in number 10. And then the moment of coronavirus required both fantastic economic quick thinking and deliverable um, policies. And the Treasury absolutely knocked the lights out for the next two months. And now everyone looks to the Treasury for the place to deliver policy and as the final arbiter, which is normal within government. But they, they, they totally outgunned number 10. And I think there's a, a risk from number 10's point of view, they're sort of shunted into a cul-de-sac of playing with a little bit of science money while the Treasury really owns economic policy again. Okay, well, let's leave behind the virtual conference hall and get back to the real battlefront. Although if you're a minister, you might not want to, because a data glitch has seen 16,000 COVID test results mislaid. And there was the inevitable barrage of bad headlines and uh, flustered explanations that followed. Jill, where should the blame lie? We don't know, is the truth. Um, uh, Obviously, this wasn't deliberate, but it was a sort of cock up. I mean, you could say that Matt Hancock entrusted Dido Harding with knocking heads together and making sure we had a system that worked. And what this has very clearly shown is that we don't have a system that is robust enough and resilient enough. Um, Was Dido Harding the person that said it's a good idea to collect this uh, data in Excel rather than using a proper database? Probably not, but you would look at the system she's put in place because the system she's put in place should be those that can guarantee a seamless end-to-end process because she is in charge of test and trace. I think what's very interesting is the last time we had a, a sort of big data breach, the time when HMRC put the wrong disks, uh, child benefit disks in the post and they went off uh, to nobody quite knows where. Then the chairman of HMRC, Paul Gray, resigned. What's been very notable here is actually nobody stepping up to take responsibility and say, this was uh, this on my watch, I'm going to put it right. But I think this just requires government actually to say it really needs to have better assurance processes around some of its system basics because this test and trace has been a nightmare for some time. It's been a nightmare in loads of different ways and it still is very clearly not sorted. And that comes back to an earlier thing, which is Dido Harding was asked to get test and trace up and running, but then... In the middle of August, Matt Hancock tasked her with doing something completely different, which was to create a new body out of the remnants of Public Health England and to take that and create this new, merge it with test and trace and create this new system called the National Institute of Public Health. Lots of people said, actually, uh, including on the IFG blog, was this really a sensible decision given all the distractions we know machinery of government changes caused, was it really, even if it's the right thing to do long term, was it really a sensible time to be doing it when you wanted people to be focusing on the day-to-day job rather than the longer run? Giles, I mean, how important is test and trace in all this? Is it it the answer to lockdown if we don't have a vaccine? 
I, I look. I'm, I think it's incredibly important in that if you look at the countries that somehow have managed this best and have managed to keep their economy going, they seem to have a really robust test and trace system. Also, I remember talking to you on a podcast um, back in March where I said, over the next six months, we're going to learn a lot about COVID and that will change the way we respond and that will nuance our health measures and hopefully enable us to sort of strike trade-offs in a better place. And the sort of thing we've learned is that some events are incredibly bad for spreading um, COVID, you know, super spreader events, late nights in loud, in loud bars and so forth. And some things like people going for a walk on the Yorkshire Moors where they would have been castigated in March. People realise it's not a problem anymore. Now, you can only respond to that kind of granular intelligence if you have a really good responsive system. And the thing that bothers me most, apart from this um, attempt to create something in the middle of a crisis is the consistent use of the word national. Because if you read some of the accounts of how local areas have responded better, for example, Leicester realising that it wasn't through the textile workshops, but through the households that COVID was spreading, it's because the local people got the data they needed finally. And it wasn't just being hoarded in some cabinet office room with lots of bleeping screens. And they knew how to respond and reach the right people. So we need a really good test and trace system, but it has to be delivered locally where the reach out to the right people can be done effectively. That's a really important point. And Salma, I'd love your, your view on that. I mean, of whether the government is going to have to go local, if you like, in, in, in building a proper response system to this. I think actually the data point is the interesting one because then it doesn't m mean an either or between national and local. What it means is that there is information that is better shared. There is a, there is a slight point here, which I think, I mean, I am certainly uh, guilty of this from in, in the various departments that I've worked in. Whenever there's kind of a crisis or pressure, there's a tendency to react with anxiety because, you know, you need to have answers for people that you don't fully you know, to questions that you don't fully understand. So I think it is right to say, we don't understand this disease fully yet. And um, understanding transmissions and getting better at asking those questions about spread um, may in fact be, be more important in terms of reopening the economy and giving people confidence to move around than the test and trace system. I think I think the thing that's always difficult in government is having to react to other people's questions and an, and an agenda and not being able to give clarity actually compounds the issue slightly. I don't think it's the, it's the binary choice between national and, and local. I think it is a, a question of getting more information, getting the right information, asking better questions and being able to share that. Well, that's, that's interesting. And, and Giles, finally, on this, you've had a go at your own coronavirus data crunching. What have you found? Well, what I've found, I mean, what I've been, I tried to do is work out the relationship between uh, testing figures now that we've got them properly by the day that the person takes the test to admissions about 10 days later to fatalities five days after that, just to try and work out whether these relationships are stable. And one of the good ways of doing this is to play your own super forecaster game and say, well, this is what the data says. So let's see in 10, 15, 20 days whether I'm right. Um, my, my prediction is that if we are suffering 10,000 tests and the relationship is the same as it's been since the summer, we ought to be seeing maybe 750 or so hospitalizations in a couple of weeks' time, and maybe a hundred or so deaths in England. Um, so that's what I've been learning. But you, only, I mean, science is all about 
proceeding through mistakes. So what I'm doing is making public predictions on Twitter, getting a lot of people coming later and saying, told you so, you were wrong, and, and learning as a result. And I've been told there's a lot more digging to be done about the how it's spreading from the young to the old and whether these universities are separated from the rest and so forth. So I hope I'm pessimistic and it won't be as bad as that. Well, you're not running for office, so thank you for the public service and the service that I have put you on that. And with that, it's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Jill Rutter, Giles Wilkes, and especially to Salma Shah. Thanks for being with us. And thank you all at home for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more of our discussions, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. And we've got a couple of brand new, terrific Brexit-themed episodes exploring how to solve the negotiation sticking block of state aid and looking at what Brexit means for future cooperation on security. You can find all that Wherever you get your podcasts, do leave us a review. You can find all of our work at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So the party conference season is over, and to everyone's delight, this time without the usual hangovers and headaches, so maybe that's about to kick in for the government. See you next week. <laughs>